Welcome to the Future Think podcast from the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at Arizona State University. I'm Heather Ross. Together with my colleague, Andrew Maynard, we chat with a variety of experts on and off campus about science, technology, innovation, and policy. This podcast brings you the hallway conversations where we think about our collective future. In this episode, I chat with Clark Miller, the Associate Director of the School for the Future of Innovation in Society. Clark and I talk about elections as knowledge systems. I should mention that we recorded this episode without Andrew because we wanted to get it posted before the presidential election next week. But don't worry, Andrew will be back with us next time. Before we start, this is just our second podcast episode, so we really want to know what you think. Leave us a comment on iTunes or SoundCloud or tweet at us at FutureThinkPod. If you like what we're doing, please tell your friends. And thank you for listening. All right, so let's talk about elections. You bet. What do you think, Clark? What would you like to know about elections? Well, so you wrote a paper after, was it after Hanging Chads? Yeah, after Hanging Chads. That uh, posited this idea that elections are knowledge systems. So what, what does that mean? Well, so I think that one of the things that we're coming to realize very slowly in this country is that um, democracy is actually sort of kind of sometimes about facts. Kind of, sort of, sometimes? Yeah. And um, <laughs> that was sarcasm in case you didn't get that. I wonder um, what Ira Glass would have to say about that. <laughs> whereby facts, what I mean is uh, claims about knowledge, about what's going on in the world, about stuff in the world that are widely shared across the, in this case, the electorate um, or the public within a democratic society. Uh, And there's a great book uh, if you want to get into the real weeds on this um, by an Israeli political scientist, Yaron Israhi, called Imagined Democracies. Um, But basically the idea is, and and elections are a really great example of this, um, elections are sort of the hallmark of democracy because if they're successful, when they're successful, they allow for the peaceful transition of power from one power holder to another power holder. And that is the hallmark of democratic processes is to be able to say, yes, we the people are in charge of who's in control. Um, We decide who holds power in our society. And when we're done with one group and we want to move on to another group, we say, okay, time for you to go and you to come in. And that happens. And there's nobody fighting. And we don't have all of the messy ugliness of the exercise that the exercise of power can be. Tanks in the streets. Mm Uh, security forces out there and so forth. And all of that hangs Mm -hmm. in our version of democracy on the ability to create a fact. Mm -hmm. In this case, who wins the election? Knowledge of who wins the election. Such that that becomes widely shared among the public. So, when I hear that, I think, okay, fine, so an election is an instrument of a system of democracy, but you're saying that elections are themselves 
the knowledge system. So yeah, what do you so, mean? So I mean by that, I mean precisely what you mean. So you say it's an instrument, and I say yes, it's an instrument. In this mm -hmm. case, it's an instrument for computing a particular fact. You can talk about it in this case, or measuring, if you will. You could talk about it as measuring the will of the electorate. Okay. It's an instrument for measuring it, just like your doctor measures your heart rate, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, it's fuzzy, right? Because we don't get to ask really super complicated questions and get really sophisticated answers. Mm -hmm. We get to ask, do you want this person to be president or do you want that person to be president? Or maybe do you want this third person uh -huh. to be president? And then everybody in the country throws a lever or these days writes a line across a ballot or mm -hmm. in the old days punched something and got hanging chads or whatever. Yeah, right? in the old days. <clears throat> and then you have to count a hundred and some odd million of these. Mm -hmm. And you got to do it pretty quick. Yep. So in the old days we used to have to do that literally within hours. Right. Now because of mail-in ballots it extends over a longer period of time. Mm -hmm. um, because, but the counting still has to happen pretty quick because we want answers pretty quick. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, and of course, you have to know who gets to vote. Right. So, that, so, and then you have to be able to adjudicate whether only those people who are supposed to get to vote actually voted. Right and keep other people who aren't supposed to vote from voting and all of that com complexity. And so there's this vast, complicated institutional apparatus mm -hmm. that exists at every precinct level across the United States mm -hmm. that has to manage this process before, on, and after election day to get all of these ballots cast and counted. It's a giant counting right. exercise. Right. Um, and then we have to come to the determination of who won, and of course, thanks to the founders' mm -hmm. uh, wisdom, I'll call it that, we have this complicated multi-step process that includes the Electoral College, so we don't actually vote for president, we vote for electors who then run off to right. Washington and meet and cast their ballots and all of that kind of stuff, but usually we ignore that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's one of the great sort of interesting pieces of wizardry that goes on in our electoral knowledge system uh -huh. is that generally speaking we ignore all of that right. because we estimate on election night mm -hmm. how all of that is going to play out and then we announce the winner. Has it ever happened right. that Excluding the Dewey Trump or Dewey, Dewey Trump, Trump. <laughs> <laughs> the Dewey Truman headline. Yeah. Um, that was close, though. <coughs> I didn't realize that Truman and Trump would have sat next to each other in fourth grade. Um, wow. Uh, but excluding that case. Yeah. Has there been another case where sort of the day after ended up not matching what the electoral college said? Not to my knowledge. Okay. Um, certainly not in recent history, by which we could say the last century. Right. It, there, who knows what happened in the early 19th century. I'm not an <laughs> elections historian. Right, right. But no, there hasn't in, okay. in, in recent times. Um, uh, you know, of course, we had this uncertainty in 2000. 
right, right. about how all of that was going to play out uh, associated with, and, and that was what really clued me in, right? Because here you had, in essence, 30 some odd days of constitutional crisis. Mm -hmm. Certainly constitutional anxiety, let's call it that. Sure. Um, caused by the fact that we didn't know the answer to the question of who won the election in Florida. Mm -hmm. right? And so that uncertainty, you know, shook our democracy in some pretty fundamental ways. And of course, there were people who wanted Al Gore to contest right, right. at the end the election and not accept the judgment of the Supreme Court, which was this bizarre sort of ruling anyways. Yeah. And he said, forget it. This is this is not taking us anywhere we want to go as a democracy to continue to have this sort of uh, uncertainty at work. And so what's happened since then, and I think this is the challenge, and, and it's, it's part of the story about what's going on today with respect to sort of the claims about rigged elections that are being circulated now and, the, uh, and so forth, uh, is that we've had a whole series, what that, event in Florida did was it made our the inner workings of this knowledge system much more visible right. to folks. Um, and it created the sensibility that it was possible that these things could get messed up. Right. Which in a way we hadn't sort of had since the FBI shut down sort of the vote rigging schemes in Chicago in the right. <laughs> 1930s and 40s, yeah. right? So we'd had a pretty reliable sort of system where there mm -hmm. hadn't been any major sort of mm -hmm. questions of that sort asked. There were always have been fundamental questions. So, you know, the, the, the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act in the 1960s were all about unwinding a whole series of practices that have been put in place to keep black people from voting in elections in the United States, even though they were free, even though the Constitution said they had the right to vote, mm -hmm. nonetheless states had figured out strategies whereby they could keep black right. folks from, from voting. Um, but, you know, we sort of hadn't had anything calling into question the ability to legitimately and and reliably count votes mm -hmm. until 2000. But once that became opened up for conversation, uh, then a whole series of things are coming into play having to do with essentially the digital revolution. And, the, and we're, you know, we see this all over the place where digital security is now a kind of central issue that all of us confront around our credit cards and mm -hmm. around our yeah. bank accounts and and you know and so not surprisingly we're digitizing our electoral counting system mm -hmm. because people think that you can count faster and that way and of course you know the bush argument in 2000 in florida was let the machines count the votes right. they're not Republicans, they're not Democrats, mm -hmm. they don't get tired, they don't get grumpy, they just count ballots. Right. Well, so that sort of machine objectivity, right, notion is one that has had a lot of history in the United States, mm -hmm. and we're pretty comfortable with the idea that machines are neutral in that sense. Yeah, um, but even though 
The Future Think podcast is produced with the support of the School for the Future of Innovation in Society and the Risk Innovation Lab at Arizona State University. Our music is by Mark Van Hare. Please subscribe. You can find us on iTunes and SoundCloud and on Twitter at FutureThinkPod. Of course, there are lots of ways that you can make, yeah, as we're now discovering, you can make machines count in funny stuff. Folks make machines, yeah. <coughs> right. And people aren't neutral, even if they're Swiss. They are not neutral. Yes, this is yeah. exactly right. So we've had now 2004, 2008, 2012, and in every single election, there has been an undercurrent. It's it hasn't sort of made it up to the level of mainstream media mm-hmm. um, in a big way at any rate. But there's been an undercurrent of social media stories uh, and uh, lower level media accounts of efforts to hijack various right. kinds of devices, elections, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you know, one of the things I learned writing about the 2000 case was that this is normal for American democracy. We've been trying to steal elections <laughs> since the very beginning. Since there have been elections, and yeah. And we've built this fairly sophisticated knowledge system for grappling with all of that mm-hmm. and for creating abilities to review and recount and challenge and resolve mm-hmm. electoral disputes of various kinds. And the courts actually have been pretty sophisticated about this and one of the, one of their more sophisticated um, strategies is essentially to say look if there aren't enough votes mm-hmm. at stake we're not going to actually investigate okay so if an election is won by 50,000 votes and somebody comes in with a claim that says hey this person stole 5,000 votes then the courts generally have said it's not sufficiently material for mm-hmm. us to spend a lot of time and anxiety because we know that what we're doing when we do that mm-hmm. is undermining the confidence of the American public right. in their electoral knowledge systems. And that confidence is important. Well, that confidence is necessary <coughs> for the whole system of democracy yes, to absolutely. exist in the same way that confidence in banks is necessary for economies to exist, right? Right. Yeah. And so my, um, one of my propositions is that we need to think hard about what the fundamental sort of knowledge infrastructures are, or knowledge systems, if you want to call it that, Mm -hmm. that underpin key parts of our democratic processes and then we need to think about how we um, nurture that confidence and I don't mean that in a sense of giving people false confidence Mm -hmm. I mean in a sense of going through the processes that we need to go through in order to make sure that everybody actually does have confidence because they should have confidence Mm -hmm. in the way that this system is working and we need to be a little more thoughtful and careful about not doing things that cause significant numbers of people not to have confidence in how this is working right so it has been my contention 
um, that um, that a variety of practices, and I think that this is to some degree bipartisan, mm -hmm. um, that are currently ongoing, uh, actually aren't good things to be doing. Such as? Well, so, you know, I think, um, uh, I think uh, that we are, for example, um, we have, through budget cuts, we have undercut the ability of elections officials um, to have a good sense of what we're doing, of what they're doing with these machines. What do you mean? Um, meaning that they don't have the staff to, uh, or the expertise on the staff to review the kinds of um, machines that they're buying and to oh, determine okay. whether they're buying safe machines or not safe machines. Okay. There, we have uh, similarly not put in place standards for cybersecurity associated with mm -hmm. these kinds of machines. Mm -hmm. um, <coughs> uh, I think that um, we need to find some way to create uh, a little more bipartisan consensus about the strategies that we should be taking to open up voting to make it easier to vote and at the same time ensuring that you know reinforcing the idea that that elections are fraud free Okay. Right? So we've got on the one side a whole series of things that are being done um, that Democrats are pursuing to open up the vote. I think that it's a great thing to open up the vote to as many people as possible. One of the things that makes our voting system vulnerable to this kind of crap mm -hmm. is that um, we have a voting systems that works such that only a fraction of the people vote. It's right. a reasonable fraction, but it's not near 100%, right, which means right. there's lots of room for either increasing the number of people who are going to vote for you mm -hmm. or decreasing the number of people who are going to vote for, your, for the other person. Sure. And those kinds of tactics mm -hmm. are precisely the ones that sort of push the envelope of legitimate elections practice, and when you push the envelope of, of in that way, sometimes you cross over the boundary, and that creates then skepticism on the part of the public that what's happening is a kind of free and fair election. Mm -hmm. and so, you know, it's just a little more trying to attend a little more carefully to say uh, to get. I mean, ideally, to get campaigns to say, no, 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 these kinds of things are not good things for us to be doing when we push them over the edge, right? To so, sort of try to increase the percentage of people overall who are voting, mm -hmm. because the more people who are, the, the higher the percentage of people who are voting, the less room that there is for manipulation of those numbers at the margin, mm -hmm. and therefore the less incentive there is mm -hmm. to try to tip the scales sure in, you know in inappropriate ways so you know you said it should be 
you refer to the campaigns involved with this and involved with sort of maneuvering who votes and who doesn't vote. Yeah. But it seems like that the campaigns shouldn't be sort of working in that space. Like that should be the job of the democracy writ so, large to, to hmm. enroll people, right, um, to voting. And, you know, I have to say, I, I remember Rock the Vote, which happened prior to my, the first Rock the Vote was before I was old enough to vote, but it was very much in this like, ooh, MTV is a thing and this is exciting and look at this right. sort of, um, you know, young person's media situation becoming a, a, an actor and a citizen in, in the election. So, you know, that of course has gone on and then we saw a push for, you know, enrolling more people in 2008. Mm -hmm. um, there was another big push to that. But I'm seeing this year for this election a really remarkable set of efforts. And maybe I just wasn't paying attention before, which is a distinct possibility. <laughs> but it seems like there has been really non-partisan, but all, in addition to partisan actors, really encouraging you know, people to register and yep. people to exercise this right. So we have a lot, there, in every election, there is a lot of both partisan and nonpartisan mm -hmm. efforts to get people to register and to get uh, people to come out to vote. And so I do agree that, and, and I do agree that that in general is good and ideally we would be doing that in a nonpartisan way. I think one of the challenges that we have um, it, it, separate from the campaigns, so the campaigns are doing things mm -hmm. and you know and by the way digitization there is driving new stuff too because they sure. can micro target through advertising, they can mm -hmm determine who they think are more likely to be their voters or, or mm -hmm. our vote. You know, it used to be you did voter get out, get out the vote. Yeah. Voter mobilization drives on election day mm -hmm. in um, areas where you knew you had a huge advantage. Right, right. Now, first of all, with early voting, you've got a month sometimes mm -hmm. to do this get out the vote effort and those votes are happening in a variety of different places. And because you can micro-target, you can now actually go into opponent's territory and get your vote out. Right, right. Or get people that you think are going to be your voters mm -hmm. out. And we've got the digital databases to tell us who those are. So, sure. so we're transforming those practices mm -hmm. through the digital revolution as well. So a, a big part of this is not yet having fully thought through what the digital revolution means right. ultimately for elections. And there's good things and bad things about that. Um, but I was, you know, it, beyond what the campaigns are doing, it's also the case that one of our challenges is that legislatures can't leave well enough alone. So there's this constant effort to rewrite mm -hmm. election laws, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it's legislators, it's governors, it's secretaries of state mm -hmm. who are increasing the number of early voting days, decreasing the number of early voting days, right, right. Um, 
adding new voter ID requirements, taking away voter ID requirements. I mean, there's just this constant churn Redistricting. Now. Redistricting, right? That is, for all intents and purposes, a constant ongoing campaign mm -hmm. to create electoral winners for your side and right. losers for the other side. And so that, too, is something... Uh, combined with the fact that we still have 50 separate electoral systems. Mm -hmm. And so there's a growing number of people who are calling for national election standards mm -hmm. so that you would have one set of standards that everybody would have to live by. It's a classic sort of states' rights issue, so it you know, creates fundamental constitutional questions about right. the relationship between states and the federal government. Um, and elections are one of those things that the Constitution leaves to the states. Mm -hmm. <coughs> but there may well be arguments for in a high-tech modern world mm -hmm. um, creating a common set of standards that well, it's, all elections have to live up to. It seems like in this distributed model of standards that we have now, <coughs> that leads to it in many ways it uh, you know it ensures that elections cannot be an instrument to you know suss out knowledge right because it, it means that in that elections can be instruments that are easily manipulatable mm -hmm. to suss out the knowledge of only part of the system. Mm -hmm. um, so would a single national election standard allow this knowledge instrument to be a more effective, a more complete, a more true instrument? So I don't buy that. Um, because, so I go back to what, another thing that the Bush campaign, and believe me, I was not pulling for them to win in Florida Are in 2000. Are we W or? Oh, w. So w. W okay. in 2000, All right? right? In the con contest in Florida mm -hmm. after the election. Again, I was not pulling for them, but another thing that they said that I think makes a lot of sense is that you want to write the rules. Mm -hmm. And then you want to play by those rules. Right. Right? So, you know, if you're playing football mm -hmm. and you have a tight set of rules that say you have to protect the quarterback and you can't hit the quarterback in the head or very hard or whatever, right, right that's going to make it easier for quarterbacks and harder for defenses. Right. And so that's going to make it so that the teams that happen to be good on offense and mm -hmm. have good quarterbacks are going to get that much better. Mm -hmm. And the teams that have been relying on good, def good hard defensive play right. are going to find it harder to win. Sure. Okay. So no matter how you write the rules, it's going to favor certain kinds of outcomes over mm -hmm. other kinds of outcomes. So I don't think that there's any way to get a true objective answer. Okay. But I do think that there are ways that you could... I do think that the challenge is that when you have this decentralized, everybody writes their own rules mm -hmm, model, mm -hmm. that it's much harder to manipulate the rules in an ongoing way. Okay. Right? So it'd be much easier to have a, hey, 
this is what the rules are and we're all going to play with them and we're going to change them. You know, if we're talking about presidential elections, we're going to have the presidential election and then six months later we're going to do a review of what happened and we're going to change them and then everybody's going to know for three and a half years what uh -huh. the rules are mm -hmm. and we're going to live by those rules. You know, you could do something like that so that you didn't have constant manipulation. Every election seems like something new is being tried. Right. And all of that stuff would be illegitimate. And so local, nothing, you know, the thing about democracies is they don't, they can't prevent anybody from undertaking bad behavior. Right, right. They can only hold them accountable for doing so. But what it would make is all local efforts to change the rules in one way or shape, form, or another would be illegitimate. Okay. Right, and right. so so now you have, the problem is you have to trust the feds mm -hmm. to set a good fair set of standards. So getting to the point where you had a clear and, and trusted set of national standards would actually take a quite a political process. Sure. You'd have to be very thoughtful and careful about how you got there. Mm -hmm. Probably be some bipartisan blue ribbon commissions or something like that that would help nucleate the process to get there so that you get all the people who don't have a lot of confidence mm -hmm. in the federal government nonetheless feeling confident that their positions have not been left out right. or the rules have not been set up at the get-go stacked mm -hmm. in a way that's stacked against them. Right, so potentially... So we used to do this, by the way. How so? For nine states. So for nine states, the Department of Justice under the Civil Rights, or the Voting Rights Act of 1965 had the power and authority to essentially review any local changes in electoral law oh, before sure. they went into practice. Okay. Okay. Right? And so but the, and it that was wasn't a wrist slap though, wasn't it? It was. Yeah. It wasn't a single national standard. Uh-huh. But it was a single national interpretation uh -huh. of what was a reasonable and an versus an unreasonable election law. Right. And so for at least for those nine states that were under the DOJ mm -hmm. observation. <coughs> they had to live with that interpretation. Okay. And you know what? The evidence is very clear. It worked. Okay. By the time, and in fact, that's why we don't have it anymore. Oh, because, okay. For two reasons. One is because it was so successful mm -hmm. that when people came, when the, so it was only justified constitutionally because there was equal protection issues being violated right. in those states. And so when Congress came back in 2006 and put in place an extension of the Voting Rights Act, mm -hmm. they got sued by Shelby County, Alabama, and the Supreme Court agreed that there was no justification for ongoing, for ongoing yeah. review because there was no longer an equal protection issue mm -hmm. because blacks and whites were voting in equal and appropriate pr percentages yeah. okay. in all of those states. Okay. Now, other groups tried to claim that there was still an ongoing history of efforts to mess those things mm -hmm. up mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. those states. 
Congress then made a mistake, and it basically left, because there's no way it could have done anything else politically at the time, right. it left those original nine states as the only ones mm -hmm. being covered, trying to argue that there was still evidence that they were trying to manipulate the vote, they just weren't being successful because of the Voting Rights Act. I see. The problem was that there's a whole bunch of states mm -hmm. that in fact are doing don't have good voting rights records for African-Americans or Hispanics. Sure. They were not covered by the extension because politically that would have been too big of a potato to try to right, take right. on. And the Supreme Court said, so basically what you're telling us, Congress, mm -hmm. is that this law is designed to solve voting rights issues. Mm -hmm. And it's covering a bunch of states where there's no evidence that blacks are being disproportionately singled out for suppression of the vote and it's not covering a bunch of states where they are right right that's irrational done done yeah <laughs> so, so it's a very interesting sort of uh, so it progression. seems like there <coughs> is a moral and ethical imperative for a democracy to ensure that voting rights are equitable and justly exercised and it seems like in light of the evidence that the Voting Rights Act in this nine state, you know, oversight um, approach yielded, you know, improved, you know, the exercise of justice with regard to voting, that if we were operating in any kind of evidence-based system, right, yeah. that this would be you know, across the board. And it would give states and, or, you know, municipalities or however you want to break it down, the opportunity to, you know, submit their evidence and have the, you know, power, the whether it's the Department of Justice or whatever, say, you're good to go, check, like, keep on keeping on, and fine but subject every you know every unit to the same scrutiny so you know that again I think comes back to the same idea whether it's a, a national review of, of local election law or it's a set of national standards that mm -hmm. local elections have to comport with um, you know, I think that, that there's a strong argument that something like that could actually help mm -hmm. sort of restore some of the confidence right. uh, in um, the system. I will say, though, that, you know, what's interesting when you look history, and this isn't just about elections, when you look historically at the United States, the rise of a kind of knowledge-based politics where we um, where we rely on knowledge to resolve political conflict mm -hmm. is closely tied in this country to the growth of the federal government. And Say more. So <laughs> well, so in the uh, in Teddy Roosevelt's mm -hmm. progressive agenda. Uh, it's a different progressive than we talk about today, but um, or a slightly different definition of the word, but nonetheless, what he did was to try to eliminate f corruption and fraud and waste in a whole variety of things mm -hmm. by creating expert agencies 
uh, and you can go back and look historically at the ones you created. The Department of Justice is a Teddy Roosevelt progressive okay. era institution mm -hmm. for precisely this purpose, to create a set of judicial experts, legal experts, who could know what the law was and enforce it. Mm -hmm. The FBI mm -hmm. um, and the whole effort to get rid of uh, electoral corruption in various kinds of ways as well as other kinds of corruption. Um, but also the Bureau of Land Management, the Bureau of Reclamation, which were about taking the vast resources of the West, which were being squandered, mm -hmm. or so the argument wet, right. went, and putting them under rational systems of allocation and use. Mm -hmm. um, so these were federal resources, federal lands, federal waters, uh, to advance the nation. Right. Um, and so he created a whole bunch of institutions that were knowledge-based institutions. Second wave of this happened in the New Deal under Franklin Roosevelt. Mm -hmm. um, and then even more happened in the 50s and 60s as part of first the sort of Cold War um, increase in national security sure. activities um, and the effort to try to rationalize particularly budgeting within the Pentagon, which mm -hmm. is a never-ending exercise, but um, nonetheless, but also uh, in some of the great society legislation, and then ultimately the social regulation, so EPA, consumer protection mm -hmm. of the 1970s, right? We've right. had this whole series of improvements in American governance built around the idea that the federal government could establish appropriate knowledge standards that could then be used to resolve a variety of conflicts mm -hmm. and eliminate various kinds of waste, corruption, inefficiency right. in how we ran the business of the nation. Okay. Um, and so one of the challenges is that since the 1980s, as the federal government has come under increasing attack, uh -huh as an inappropriately powerful institution in American society. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's one thing that democracies want to pay attention to, of is whether their government yes. is getting too yeah. powerful, yes. right? Um, the forms of knowledge power that the federal government has exercised have been part and parcel of the criticism mm -hmm. and the attack. And so we're in an era, and I think this is part of what makes today's concerns among the public possible in which the a whole bunch of knowledge infrastructures mm -hmm. centered in the federal government that have been very important are now all under attack in one way shape or form or another whether it's budgetary or I mean you think about climate change right here's an, a fact-based form of politics that's been systematically sort of undercut Right, right. Time and time and time again right. for political purposes. Yeah, um, yeah. Even so in the right. face of strong and compelling data. Right, exactly. Yeah. Right. So, so in some sense, the sort of rise of evidence-based decision-making as a kind of rhetoric is in some ways arguably a response to the decline of that kind of evidence-based decision-making that was already in place but has been sort of slowly eroding under a kind of move, shift away from a kind of federal-centric politics in this country. And so it's, it's a real challenge. It is, yeah. 
right, to try to think about how we tackle these issues um, and, and create support for knowledge institutions that are absolutely critical, mm -hmm. I think particularly in a fast-paced, fast-moving, high-tech world where we're mm -hmm. confronting a whole bunch of new kinds of security threats, right. uh, new kinds of economic challenges, mm -hmm. new technological transformations of mm -hmm. our lives all at the same time. Um, and trying to make sense of where we go, I think we're reliant on those kind of knowledge institutions more and more, and yet to make good decisions. And yet we're also in a place where there is growing skepticism. And we've seen this in Trump's rhetoric, and we've, mm -hmm. we saw it in the Brexit rhetoric, mm -hmm. where in fact experts explicitly are incorporated as part of the problem. Right. Right. Associated with this sort of political movement that's that's happening. Right. So looking to the future. Yeah. As we <clears throat> are tasked to do in our jobs, how do we fix it? <coughs> um. You know, I'll come back to what I said earlier. So to me, the apt metaphor, um, I, I'm not a big believer in, in silver bullet technologies. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not a big believer that you can just uh, fix these things once with the right law and be done, right? Sure. So to me, the apt metaphor is tending a garden. Okay. So these knowledge infrastructures that are important uh, are the garden. All right. Um, and we want them to um, do a good job of producing the kinds of evidence that we need. Mm -hmm. uh, at the same time, we want them to secure the confidence of the American people. Mm -hmm. um, we want them to be just in the sense that the rules of knowledge making that are in place are not systematically disadvantaging one group or another. Right. Uh, you know, so we have a whole bunch of societal, big important societal goals yeah. um, that we want to layer onto these things. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it becomes a sort of daily task uh, and everybody has to be part of it, you know. You know, mom can't be tending the garden and the kids running through it when they're playing. And yeah, except have that's real life. <laughs> right, yeah. no, but you get the point, <laughs> right? That in a sense, we have to make visible uh -huh. these knowledge infrastructures uh, so that everybody knows that they're there mm -hmm. and that they're important. We think about democracy in terms of voting, but not always in terms of vote counting. Yeah, yeah. Right? And so we have to make vis make them visible, make visible their importance, and then we have to find ways to tend their ability. Yeah. You know, just little things that shore up here or there. It's making sure, sure that they get watered appropriately and that they get the right fertilizer and so forth. So that's the metaphor yeah. I, I think All about, right. right? It's a kind of daily kind of practice thing. And it's bottom up and and you know, we all have to agree 
that we want to continue to be a democracy and that mm -hmm. we want to continue to live together and that our, mm -hmm. these institutions are an important part of being able to do that. Mm -hmm. And so we should help them do their jobs, not right, right. undermine them. Well, and then, you know, it brings me then to the other thing that we are broadly tasked with thinking about here in our school, um, and that's technology. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it seems like technology is one of the tools that we have to do that sort of daily gardening work. And technology, it seems to me, and computing technology in particular, um, affords us the opportunity to um, uh, get to maybe transparency that would be very important to bolster trust in the system and in this knowledge instrument that we, you know, exercise via elections. So is that like looking ahead? So that's a great question. Um, because great it, question. Because people like distrust technology and distrust distrust right. computing, but it seems to me that that is the lowest hanging fruit in terms of you know an object or a tool of building trust that would allow us to do the things that are important to build trust. So I think the key is that we need to, in, in trying to do that, because mm -hmm. look, we are going to continue to digitize elections in a variety of different ways. Indeed, at some point, it may become possible that we all simply have an app. Mm -hmm. Sure. And we cast our votes on the app and we're done. Right. Right? Um, there, that's definitely out there mm -hmm. as a possibility. Um, the key is, and you know, there was a book published recently, and and this woman is getting a fair bit of press for it uh, on um, algorithms and the way okay. in which algorithms can distort. Yep. Right. So the key is that we actually have to look at the specific way that we're proposing to use technology in a particular mm -hmm. instance. Right. And then we have to ask, what are the ways, and there will be many, mm -hmm. that this be creates benefit? Right. And what are the ways, and there will be others, that this causes new challenges sure. so that we can and you know this do this in an anticipatory way to uh -huh. as much as we can right. ahead of time rather than putting it in place and letting it fail right right so that we can then adjust the practices so that we optimize the upsides minimize the downsides mm -hmm. of that particular application so let me give you an example um, people have become concerned about whether the electronic vote counting that's happening is being manipulated by mm -hmm. the machines inappropriately or by people who've programmed the machine. Right, right. Um, so the many places are now putting their um, vote counts, their tallies on a precinct by precinct basis mm -hmm. on the web. Mm -hmm. 
and then anybody can go in and scrape that data mm -hmm. and tally yeah so that outsiders can check so it's precisely the client check the math yeah, if yeah, you yeah. will yeah of the showing official, your work yeah yes. showing <laughs> right so you would think hey this sounds like a great idea um, and it turns out it is except that <coughs> um, one of the things that the networks used to do for us the networks like ABC, ABC NBC, CBS, yeah. NBC in a for a very short period of time it turns out but it, this was crucial to my growing up so mm -hmm. you know sort of in the 70s and 80s right, and 90s right. right so I kind of think of it as forever but really it was three it decades it was back in, in the 1900s yes, yes. <laughs> sort of basically uh, you know uh, three decades of American history, which isn't very much. Right. Um, but what they would do is they would do these, um, what did they call them? There's a word for them. Anyways, they would do these polls on election day. Well, they did exit polls. Exit polls. Yeah. Thank you. That's the, that's the word. They would do exit polls. And then they would use the exit polls. They would compare the exit polls to early returns coming in from the precinct. Mm -hmm. Because they had reporters stationed at yep. precinct yep. offices and would get the early vote counts. Yeah. So what we can now do on the web, everybody can do on the web, they mm -hmm. used to do by sending somebody to the office. Right, right. Right, sending a reporter to the office there. And then they would build these models that would allow them to say, based on the relationship between the exit polls for particular locations mm -hmm. and the early returns in those locations, they'd be able to make pretty good estimates of who was actually going to win. Right, right. And so even though by 10 p.m. on election night, you hadn't counted all the ballots. You knew. The networks were projecting who was going to be the winner. Right. And you would get the concession speeches and so forth and all of that. Right. Which are crucial to sort of firming up the fact. And meanwhile, know. like, Californians hadn't gotten home Hadn't from, gotten home right? from work yeah. yet <laughs> yeah. and all of that. We had and all Hawaii, of that kind of, like, forget it. Yeah. Right, all of that kind of crap was going on. Yeah. It's a good thing California and Hawaii are deep blue, right? Right. Deep. Deep. <laughs> but, um... um now, anybody can do that. Yeah. Not just the, because everybody has access mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to all of the early returns mm -hmm. as they're coming in. And so they can make models based on um, previous elections uh -huh. and how each candidate did in previous elections. Sure. And maybe precinct patterns. At, precinct, like at the yeah, precinct yeah. level, yeah. patterns uh -huh. across the precincts. And then they can m judge mm -hmm. this election in relationship to that election. They can do, this can get very sophisticated. You can do um, demographic mm -hmm. updating. Mm -hmm. So you can, uh, you, can, you can chain, you can update the number of registrants in the Democratic sure. and Republican parties. Mm -hmm. So you can make pretty sophisticated models. Or you can do it really very simple. Mm -hmm. um, 
and you've now so you've now decentralized this. Well, it used to be again for this short three period three decade period, right. an important part of how the country came together in mm -hmm. consensus. Right, right. Well, you were asking me if anybody had gotten the electoral college wrong in sort of American history. Mm -hmm. um, um, and the answer to that is no, but in the 2012 election, there was a very public example of somebody who got this model estimating wrong. Oh, remind me with that. So Carl Rove had been hired as a commentator mm -hmm. on Fox News, mm -hmm. and the Fox News desk, based on their exit polling data, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. they were modeling the outcome and mm -hmm. they declared that Obama had won Ohio. Yes. And Carl Rove, I think it was Ohio, I'm pretty sure it was Ohio, and Carl Rove gets this mm -hmm. in his phone call, in his uh -huh. ear, uh -huh. sitting there on the set saying, that's wrong. Our models tell us that Romney's going to win. Yeah, yeah. Ohio. And so mm -hmm. Carl Rove, in a very public way, says on national TV, mm -hmm. uh, that's not right, folks. Yeah, okay. I think you should go back and check that. And the, the reporters, the, the, what do you call the people who sit in front of the TV? The... Um, the TV camp, the... It's like the, the talking head? The talking yeah, head. Yeah, The talking head stood up uh -huh. and walked back with their cameraman uh -huh. to the news office. I remember this now. challenged yeah, yeah. their numbers, and the news office said, mm, we're pretty sure. Yeah, 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 I know I remember. Right? Yep. And then it, in fact, and, but they took it back. But Fox News, as an mm -hmm. editorial decision, took Ohio back, and it was another hour. Before, yeah. Before they re-put it in, right? And mm -hmm. so all of this was so. So the i the the fact that you've you've made this more transparent uh -huh. now also means that there's more opportunity for multiple interpretations sure. to be put out in the public but landscape. Why so, does Fox News get to say no, no, folks? <laughs> the election's not done yet because we Fox News said because they yeah. have. You know, however many tens of millions of people in their audience. Yeah. Right. No, precisely. All right. Um, so, anyways, it, these things are challenging, and so something that seems like a really good idea and probably is. Right. Which is to put these electoral tallies on the web so that anybody can add them up. Transparency. And, yeah. And transparency mm -hmm. can create new challenges that we then have to figure out how to manage. Sure. So that we don't get the downsides that come along. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens here in a couple of weeks. And when this podcast goes I'm looking up, forward to being done with this election, yeah, I have yeah, to man, say. Yeah, man, this one is challenging all of our thought patterns, I think, at every level. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, I think by when this podcast, I think, it goes up and is yeah. public, uh, the election may well have happened, but I think it would be worth our time to let's come back and revisit all of our ideas in Happy the context so. of what happened. So yeah. thanks, Clark. Yeah, you bet. Thanks, right. Heather. Yeah, thanks. For more where that came from, 
Check out the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at sfis.asu.edu. The Future Think podcast is produced with the support of the School for the Future of Innovation in Society and the Risk Innovation Lab at Arizona State University. Our music is by Mark Van Hare. Please subscribe. You can find us on iTunes and SoundCloud and on Twitter at FutureThinkPod. Thank you.